The scripture reading for today is from Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and, the speak and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach and restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, let's pray together. Holy God, would you meet us this morning as we enter your word? Uh, as we seek to hear from you, would you speak? God, this is no small topic that we are uh, wading into. So we ask for Grace to believe what you have to say to us. Grace to actually obey what you've commanded us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. <coughs> All right, so we said it before, but welcome. I, I just, I, I want, uh, if you haven't been here for a while, or even if you have, like none of us have really been here in a while. It's been a few weeks, right? Uh, but if you if you had been traveling in the winter, you may may not remember that we were in First Peter, and we finished First Peter right at the end of Advent, 
And so we're starting this new series that I'm actually, uh, I've, I've been really excited about, overwhelmed by, uh, in, a, in, in, in all honesty, like I haven't even, I still don't have a grip on it yet. Like we're, we're starting it, we're going, we're going to see what's going to happen. At one point I said, uh, this is going to be like an 18 week thing. Then I was like, now nah, we, we'll do it in four, which is ridiculous when you think about it. But, but now who knows? Uh, we're, we're just going to keep going. Uh, but this is a very, very important issue if you are to call yourself a Christian. You should hear that. So we're starting this series called Just Church. And if you've been sort of hearing the themes, then you know we're not talking about, oh, all you need is church, just church. Right? We're talking about justice in the church. What does it look like for us to be a church that does justice. What is justice? See, this is, this is why I've felt a little uh, measure of like trepidation coming into this, a little uh, overwhelmed, is because this is massive in scope. The idea of justice is, is massive. And we're going to look at how the, the, the scriptures uh, addresses a host of issues that all fall under the umbrella of justice. We're going to be doing that for the next little bit. Uh, but in order to do that, uh, and this is the one thing that's been helpful for me, because, because it is so massive, and I am long-winded at times, right? So just honest, know yourself, right? right. Um, each sermon... It's very tempting for me to try and just cram a lot of things in. And so this week, this morning, as we ex explore Isaiah 58, I, I want to, to only consider four things, knowing that this is going to be an extended conversation. So now part of that is my hopefully luring you in to keep coming and listening and participating in what we're doing, but also I want to give fair weight to each of the issues that we address. And so uh, as we look at just church, we're going to be operating under this idea that biblical justice is necessary and mandatory for God's church. And I want to accomplish that this morning. I want to start that journey this morning by accomplishing just four things with you. These are the four things, and I wrote them down because I want them to be very clear. Uh, the first thing that I want to accomplish is I want us to look in Isaiah 58 and see the centrality of biblical justice to the Christian life. Now, if you've got your, like, uh, <clears throat> analytical, sort of critical uh, mind-going lenses on, you already recognize that that's a bit anachronistic, right? To talk about the Christian life, but then to speak from Isaiah, right? To say that Isaiah speaks to the Christian life. But uh, Jesus comes, as we read earlier, recited together, comes as the fulfillment of Isaiah and of Jeremiah and of Zechariah and of Moses and all that he encompasses, and so we can look at this text and we can see the centrality of biblical justice to the Christian life. So that's the first thing that we're going to do. The second thing we're going to look at is the nature of biblical justice in the Christian life. 
So the centrality of biblical justice to the Christian life, the nature of biblical justice in the Christian life, then we're going to explore some stumbling blocks to biblical justice in the Christian life. And finally, we're going to look at the means, the means of biblical justice in the Christian life. How, how, do, we, how do we do it? How do we, what, what, what motivates it? What, what fuels it? What, what directs us? What guides us? Uh, towards biblical justice. So first, let's look at the centrality of biblical justice. Uh, uh, if you are like me, which some of you are, some of you aren't. Uh, if you're like me, though, then you grew up in evangelical circles. And when I say evangelical circles, like I understand that that word has uh, <clears throat> lots of different meanings, and lots of different, like, conveys lots of different things to different people. Uh, but one thing that I think is pretty clear in evangelical communities is there is a focus on, the word evangelical meaning gospel, there is a focus on proclaiming the gospel to people so that they can be converted to Christianity. Right? That's fair. That's not, that's not, uh, that's not intended to be pejorative. Like, hey, amen, right? like proclaiming the gospel. Uh, but one of the things that I've noticed in my life in evangelicalism is that the gospel that we proclaim is decidedly smaller in scope than the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Uh, there's a professor at a school called King's College, African-American professor Anthony Bradley on Twitter this week, and, and he's, he's brilliant. And, uh, uh, I don't know. That doesn't matter. Uh, on Twitter, uh, he was uh, sort of contrasting black church and evangelicalism, which he kind of is summarizing as predominantly white evangelicalism versus, say, black evangelicalism. But black church, whether it be evangelical or not, versus sort of white mainline evangelicalism, mainstream evangelicalism. And one of the things that he said is that uh, the white evangelicalism tends to read Jesus through the lens of Paul. Which means that the thing that evangelicalism is most concerned about doctrinally is this idea of justification by faith. Justification, salvation. And so when they look at the work of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the verse that most, uh, most describes what Jesus came to do, that Jesus himself said was, I've come to seek and save the lost. However, he said if you grew up in or if you were around black church circles, we didn't read Jesus strictly through Paul. In fact, Paul wasn't the first. We read Jesus through Moses. And it would make sense, right? The people in a country oppressed and enslaved would read Jesus through the great liberator, Moses. And then all of a sudden, when you read Jesus, you don't just see salvation from hell as the topic 
uh, of concern, as the sole topic of concern, it doesn't become the gospel and justice or the gospel and civics or the gospel and this or and that. All of these things are encompassed in the gospel because as you read it through Moses, and we're going to do this next week, actually, you see that, that, that the liberation of God's people was for a holistic kingdom freedom. And so as we look at this, I, I want to even further highlight this by looking at our text this morning and looking at the centrality of justice. All of that is to say this, that it's not the gospel and justice. Justice is not tangential to the gospel. Justice is part and parcel with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Jesus came to preach, the good news that Jesus fulfilled the very promises of God. Justice is not a tangent of that. Justice is not like, okay, after you get the gospel, then you go and figure out what justice means. Justice is part and parcel with the gospel. In other words, no justice, no proper understanding of the gospel. Do you hear me? And I want to do that by creating for a moment a profile sketch of a person or a people group from Isaiah 58. So, so we're going to pull this out of the context of the chapter and then place it in the chapter because I think that this would be jarring. We have a person who seeks God day after day. You might call that commitment. Day after day seeking of the Lord. So Isaiah 58 is describing a person who doesn't just go to church on Sundays. Or even more so, doesn't just go to church on Easter Sunday and Christmas. Like, this person is in the church. And the day after day, seeking God. Right? Devotion game on point. Right? They are seeking the Lord. It says that uh, <clears throat> they delight to know my ways. Now, in the Old Testament, when they talk about knowing the ways of, the God, of God, it's the truths of God. Right, so when we would, if we would like put that into our context, what, what uh, Isaiah is saying, what God is describing is a person. So first of all, they're committed, they seek him day after day, but they're doctrinal. They care deeply about theology and getting doctrine right. They delight in knowing my ways. God's ways are synonymous in the Old Testament with who he is. So they have a robust theology. Uh, they, uh, they're like a nation that does what's right. This is a moral people. They obey the commandments of God. Right? They, they're they're, they're uh, the people who, who you, you know, no sin can be named among them. They're moral, ethical people. Right? Obviously, no sin can be named among them. You know, they're above reproach. And then listen to what he says. Uh, <clears throat> they, they ask me for righteous judgments, and they delight in the nearness of God. They delight in the nearness of God. These people are spiritual, not religious. I'm kidding. Right? These are a spiritual people. They're a devotional people. We see that. They fast. 
They fast and they deny themselves and they delight in nearness to God. So here's this character sketch now. We have a person or a people who are committed, doctrinal, moral, spiritual, and devotional. And I submit to you that if I presented a person with those, with those qualities here, or in 99.99 .99 with a line over it, percent of churches in our, in our, in our sort of tribe, country, whatever you want to call it, we would immediately say, make this person a leader. Get them in the front. They've done it. This is what we want to be. Right? If you sketch out a person, if you hear that, if somebody described you that way, wouldn't you be proud? I mean, you'd hide your pride because you're moral, right? <laughs> so you'd say in humility, oh, the Lord's just, you know, it's the Lord's kindness. Thank you. No, you don't, if you only knew my sin, right? Like, <clears throat> but secretly you'd be like, yes, yes. Like, all this Devo work is paying off, right? There's this character sketch. Now I want us to put this in context. Listen to what God says about this person or people that he's just described. You need to tell these people about their transgression. This descriptor comes after that. Tell them about their transgression. And then he goes into this. They're committed. They're doctrinal. They're moral. They're spiritual. They're devotional. And he says, and yet these people do not know me because they do not care for justice, for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. He says there's condemnation. There's transgression on them in spite of the fact that they look like this because they neglect justice. And Isaiah 58 isn't the only place you see that. We're going to come to Zechariah 7 in a little bit and see Zechariah 7 mirrors it almost perfectly. Isaiah 1, Isaiah 10, all throughout the Psalms. So, uh, Proverbs 31. That's not just about, like, like when you hear Proverbs 31, if you were raised in, in our, you think about one thing. How should a woman be? Right? Like, I need that Proverbs 31 woman. Right? <laughs> But y'all don't realize that Proverbs 31 is addressing a king and it speaks to him about justice. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about power and privilege and how you leverage it as people through the lens of Proverbs 31. God is saying, you do not know me. If you do not know the poor, and the question becomes, why? Why is this? And I, I, I want us to see this because we have to understand this. We're not going to understand justice is central to the gospel. Justice is central to knowing Jesus and knowing God until we understand and recognize that just like in Micah 6, 8, when it says they come to me raising their hands and giving me all their feasts and their fasts, and I don't hear them because that's not what I require of you. Unless we understand this, we'll never understand how to... How do, we, how do we do it then, God? How do we see you? Right? This is what we're after. This is what we're seeking. Until we understand that the reason that that, that works that way is because God identifies himself with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. 
You have to hear this. God identifies himself with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. But don't take my word for it. Let's look to the scriptures, right? Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt to the Lord. What you do to the poor, you show to the Lord. If you oppress the poor, you show contempt to the Lord. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever gives to the poor, gives to the Lord. you hear that? Whoever gives to the poor is giving to the Lord. And then, of course, in Matthew 25, Jesus breaks it down like this. He says, all these people are coming in and saying, Lord, Lord, I knew you. And, and, and the Lord says to them, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. When I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me in. And they say, when? And God says, the Lord says, even as you did to the least of these, you did unto me. God identifies himself with the poor. So if you are not acquainted with the poor in their suffering, you are not acquainted with God. That should be terrifying. It should be troubling. Right? Isaiah, this Isaiah's uh, uh, book, right, his prophecies were not a pat on the back to his people. Like they didn't, but hey, let's get some light reading that'll make us happy. Break out Isaiah, right? Like that's not what happened. They read Isaiah and they were trembling like Isaiah is through much of the book of Isaiah. Do you realize that we love Isaiah? We talk a lot about it. He was pierced for our transgressions. Cover, right, our, the, the, the weight of our punishment was on him. And we recognize this and we think about that because we think about salvation and personal salvation. We think about our sin on the cross and it gives us that. And at the same time, all mixed up in it is this idea of justice. He has come to bring justice. And so you have to understand, church, that when Jesus says, I've come, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim these things to the poor, the oppressed, the prisoner. Where is he quoting? It says it right in the text. They, ha they handed him Isaiah. And then it says he flipped to a passage. Now, if it was Jesus of my writing or of our writing, he probably would have flipped to the suffering servant passage. But he doesn't. He flips to the passage that talks about how the Spirit of the Lord is on his holy person in order to pursue and do and enact justice. So when we say just church, we're not like this is redundant. And I hope that through the course of this series, we understand this. We're not a church who practices justice. That'd be like a church who prays. What you mean there are churches that ain't pray? Of course not. It's what churches do. And so when you see that, that's the centrality of biblical justice. And all of a sudden, we can walk into these things and ask ourselves some questions, which is number two, the nature of, of, of biblical justice in the Christian life. And in order to do that, man, next week I'll put it up on the screen because it's, it's a long definition that me and some, some pastor friends uh, and some friends of mine who are like, theologians and seminary professors, blah, 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 blah. I like shot out a definition and we like pinged it around and hammered out. And this is our working definition of biblical justice um, for this series. So next week I'll put it on the screen so that you can see it um, and write it down. I'll, I'll even put it on the website or whatever, like, so that you have it. 
when we understand biblical justice, we want to talk about the nature, but we have to define it first. And so here's what we're going to be exploring for the next probably at least 10 weeks. Biblical justice seeks to mirror in practice God's judgment of the way things are meant to be. It seeks to mirror in practice God's judgment of the way things are meant to be. It demands a society where individuals are all treated with the dignity becoming of the imago Dei, of bearing the image of God, and where systems are ordered in ways that uphold this dignity. This involves the reversal of attitudes, actions, structures, and systems that create or maintain an actual or even a functional caste system based on innate or constructed distinctions. Like I said, we need to put it on the screen because that's long. But at the very root of it, biblical justice seeks to mirror and practice God's judgments of the way things are meant to be. And as we look at this text, we, we sort of see that there are, there are at least, I would say at least, four things that, that go into biblical justice, that make up, that, that sum up the nature of biblical justice. Right? And, <clears throat> and the first is this. Basic justice. We treat everyone equally. Equitable treatment. Equal treatment. This is, like, this is amazing to me that it says uh, <clears throat> that uh, it, is it not to, to uh, break the chains of wickedness, untie the rope to the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke, Right, like these yoke, these bonds, they hold people back and they hold people down from human flourishing, which God designed. And what he's saying is, is not the fast of justice that I desire to break those yokes and those bonds in order to establish equity. When you look at uh, <clears throat> Exodus 22:23, for example, it's embedded in the law. We're going to talk about this uh, next week. Moses and the law, essentially the same thing. Exodus 22. And, and uh, <clears throat> when, you, when you look at um, verse 21, it says this. Look, you must not have different laws for foreigners. You must not exploit a foreign resident or oppress him. You hear that? Uh, later on, it, it goes on to say in, in, in chapter 23, uh, do not... Uh, <clears throat> where am I? I'm sorry. You must not deny justice to a poor person among you in his lawsuit. You must not take a bribe. Why? Why mustn't you take a bribe, right? Obviously, there's the reason that we think of is that it, it skews your ability to make righteous judgments, but in the context of, of uh, justice, uh, uh, laws about protecting the vulnerable, laws about justice for the vulnerable, consider this, that God places it here because what can't poor people do? Bribe. 
So a bribe in practice in law necessarily excludes equity and equality for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. So, so God says, don't do it. Right? If you look at uh, <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 7, I was talking about this uh, earlier, and I've got to mark my Bible better. Anyway, Zechariah chapter 7. He says, uh, make fair decisions. Make fair decisions. Do not oppress the poor or the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner. And so what he's saying is your justice, your decisions, your, 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 uh, <clears throat> your systems must treat all people equitably. And then, well, this is going to be its own Sunday, too, so don't worry. This is kind of a large, like, trailer, like a 40-minute trailer, right? <laughs> when you look at how God describes, uh, describes the coming kingdom, what he says is that I will lower the mountains and I will raise the valleys. Now, if you take those out of context, uh, I don't even know what you make of them, honestly. But when you place them in context, he's talking about abuses to the poor, and abuses and oppression of specifically the poor. And when you look at how the church operates, there is no such thing as economic injustice. And in the kingdom of God, there's this leveling of the playing fields that we have to talk about. What does that mean? How does that happen? Because I can feel like the libertarians in the room like glaring at me. But we, we have to talk about this, right? We have to talk about economic equality. The church's role in it, and how what God has to say about it, right? That's basic justice. We treat everybody equally, but then it goes even further than that. Biblical justice goes so each of these these aspects are kind of I would say a step deeper into it. It goes deeper into it, and it's a category that I've called restorative justice. What that literally means is special treatment, special investment. Special concern and care for the underprivileged. Special concern and care for the oppressed and the marginalized. We break off every yoke. We, look what it says. Is it not indeed to share your bread with who? With the hungry. Is it not to bring the poor and homeless into your house? To clothe the naked when you see him? It's, it's, special, it's special investment, unique treatment of the marginalized and the, the vulnerable. Think about the law. Think about the law. The laws of gleaning, who are they for? The poor and the, and the visitor, the, the, the sojourner, the, the alien in your land. Uh, let them glean from your fields so that they may not go hungry. Jesus doesn't just say, the, God, uh, the, the law doesn't just say treat everybody equally. It says when somebody is in need, you go out of your way to meet their need. Because that is necessary for basic justice. You can't have basic justice if there isn't equity. And if there is inequity in a community, then you must go out of your way to re rectify that inequity. It's not simply, put it this way, because I love basketball, and this analogy will help me move a little bit quicker through. 
if for three quarters of a basketball game, you had the red team versus the blue team, and both anytime either team scored, the points went to the red team, Justice is not saying, well, now we're not going to look at the color of the jerseys anymore. Justice is not saying from here on out, starting in the fourth quarter, everybody's bucket will count for themselves. Because one team had a three-quarter privilege, which means justice is equitably restoring the points to a level playing field. That's justice. That's justice in the basketball game, and that's justice as the Old Testament and the works of Jesus talk to us, or speak of, describe them. We are not simply saying we're going to treat everybody equally. We're understanding that sin, and, and Christians who believe in sin as this overarching reality that damages everything should be very conscious of and very easily receptible to the idea that then there must be, and it's just, it only makes sense that systems are broken, and that broken systems can oppress specific people in very unique ways. Why do you think that it's, why do you think that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, why do you think it's always the widow, the, the orphan, the foreigner? It's because in a patriarchal society, husbands are your livelihood. They're your justice. They're your hope for fair treatment. So if you're a widow in a patriarchal society, you automatically are a step down just because of how society is structured. Likewise, in a patriarchal society, fathers, and notice it doesn't say motherless. It always says, it doesn't say orphan. It says fatherless. Because if you are without a father, you are, in the way that those societies were structured, necessarily necessarily marginalized because of how those structures were, were set up. And so God says, attack, care for the people and attack those structures. We'll see that later, right? Like the, the gospel works to subvert and, and, and reverse those structures. It's restorative justice. It's more than just basic fair treatment. It's saying in order to get to a place where we can do basic fair treatment, we have to equitably, like, like we have to raise people up out of their station. And then it goes into, so, so, so it goes from basic justice to restorative justice to what can only be called social justice. And I know that that's a loaded word for some of you. But in essence, what social justice, what social justice uh, responds to is what we just talked about. The fact that sin doesn't just break individuals because systems and structures are built by groups of individuals. So if groups of individual people are sinful, why would the structures then be perfect? Right? If you use a faulty ruler, why would your measurement then come to be without fault? And so we, <clears throat> we, we work towards, we subvert and reverse structures and systems of injustice. We'll see this in the life of Jesus. It's actually quite phenomenal. Uh, I, we can't spend too much time there today, but, but this is this next level, right, where, where when you talk about basic justice and restorative justice, in your mind, you probably are able to think about the poor, but to individualize them, right? Like, I, I'm not thinking about the poor, I'm thinking about a poor person. And I'm not thinking about social or structural action, I'm thinking about how I act. But social justice does not allow us to do that. Social justice says 
There are bigger systems and structures, and there are more than just individuals, but we are a society. We are a culture. When you read the day of the Lord, uh, the, the year of the Lord, the uh, year of Jubilee, right? what you'll see in that is individual justice, where we're feeding the poor, but then also calls for statutes and laws, uh, pulling back on structures of slavery in order to provide systemic justice to people. Social justice. And let me say this as an aside. If you're inclined to use social justice warrior as a pejorative term, please stop. All right, let's keep going. Um, and then, that, then the deepest level, the deepest level then, is biblical justice. Biblical justice. Tim Keller calls this, Tim Keller categorizes this as generous justice. And it goes beyond that. So, so we've got basic justice, we treat everyone equally, restorative justice, special investment into the underprivileged, social justice, subversion and reversal of structures and systems of injustice. And then we come to this category, biblical justice. And this is biblical justice. And this is why I frame it in this category, because <clears throat> for us as Christians, we're thinking about this as Christians. And this is what I would say. It is justice that seeks nothing in return. That is harder than it seems. Justice simply for the sake of pouring yourself out. Keller calls it generous justice. He's smarter than me, so if you want to call it that, that's fine. Um, he's been at it a lot longer than me, too. So... <clears throat> It's the idea that the Bible doesn't just demand basic equity. It actually demands sacrificial, generous giving. Sacrificial, generous care. Be generous. Listen to this. Leviticus 25, 35 through 37. Right? Since we like bits and pieces of Leviticus, I know. So here's a bit and a piece of Leviticus that we ought to like. It says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. Here's why I love this. Um, <clears throat> well, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit. Right? Don't charge interest. Don't profit off of his poverty and his, his situation. But fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at an interest nor give him your food for a profit. I am the Lord your God. Now here's what I love about this. Here's what's really interesting about this, right? So obviously generosity is at the heart of that. Give generously with no thought of return or restitution, whatever. But what I love about that is that the way that God says to, like, <laughs> here's how we think. Hey, if there's an outsider in your midst, treat them like a brother because of how we structure kindness and generosity. Who are you most kind to, most generous to? Your family, your friends. So you have to treat the outsider like a brother. That means treat them with the highest level of care and concern and generosity that you possibly can. But what does God say? He says, if your brother becomes poor, and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger or a sojourner. That's insane. 
You know what that means? That means that God expects, God demands that his people care for the outsider, the foreigner, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, the stranger, the traveler in their land to such an extent that there's no better way you could treat a person. That's, that's crazy. To such an extent that if your, if your own family was in need, they would say, hey, could you treat me how you treat that person who you've never met before? But could you treat me like you treat the immigrant, the refugee, the stranger? Like that's, fam, that's not insane. That's insane. It's insane. And God says that's how you're to do it. You're to be that generous. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 18 says, give sufficiently to the poor among you. Psalm 41 says that, that, that God loves generosity. You have to give generously. When you look at the New Testament at the church, how did they live? It says that each gave according to what they had and received according to what they had need. That they held nothing as their own but shared all things in common. What's the point? The point is not how to like structure an economic system for a country. The point is that God's people live generously to the extent that if you are in God's family or if you are in the midst of God's people, even if you're not in or would not consider yourself family, that your needs are met. All of these things, all of these things encompass justice. We've already talked about this. I guess I started this way. But I just want to really briefly say, so here are the things that are going to trip it up. Number one, what's going to trip it up is if you have a small gospel. Look, the gospel is not less than Jesus came to save, to seek and save the lost. But it is so much more than that. Jesus came to care for and to free and to, to uh, bring justice to the margins. It's a sufficient gospel, a, sufficient, a sufficiently large gospel is this. Jesus said uh, he came to reconcile all things to himself. All things. Not just individuals. Not just all people. All things to himself. And when your gospel then, and when you recognize that Jesus came not just to, to create a church, but rather to institute a kingdom, to establish a kingdom, what, what, does not, what is outside of the scope of Jesus' kingdom? Well, whatever that is, that's what you're allowed to ignore. That's what you're allowed to call tangential to the gospel. So if we have a, if we have a, a gospel that is, that is small, the second thing is pride. And here's really what I, like, I'm saying pride because that's like the worst way you can sort of say it in scripture. But what I really want to say is an over-realized sense of accomplishment. Because if we were to go back, we don't have to do that. We live in a culture where we genuinely believe that the things that I've gotten, the things that I've received, the things that I have, are things that I've earned. And God may have helped me along the way, but generally speaking, it was my work and my accomplishment that got me there. Whereas the scripture preaches a completely opposite idea, that everything you have is grace. That you didn't choose the hour in which you would be born. You weren't up in heaven saying, I'm going to take those parents, right? Like, you, you didn't choose any of that. God placed you in a time and a place within a certain group of people that, like, 
it's, it's, I look at our marriage, and I say, there's, it's, it's grace, right? It seems silly, but Melissa is a daughter of the American Revolution. Like, her, her, she's a direct ancestor of Abraham Clark, who signed the Declaration of Independence for New Jersey, right? And my parents were born in another country, right? So first-generation American, first-generation America, right? Like, and God saw fit somehow to, to make us both go to Campbell, Campbell University. She was in New Jersey. I was here. We decided to go to the South. Not even just to the South, not like Chapel Hill, not like Campbell University. If you haven't heard of it, that's fine. Most people haven't. And we met there. And all I'm saying is that we met, got married, and we had three children, and none of them can claim that their life is any of their own structure and making. So Hazel didn't choose to be born where she was. Neither did you. And if your very life isn't yours, your doing, then nothing within it is your doing. What, is, what God has basically said is everything you have is a gift from me. Therefore, you have no right to not be generous. Therefore, you have no right to look down on other people. You have no right to be proud. And you can't say, because this is what happens, and this is the next thing. Number three is contempt, right? Small gospel pride. Pride leads to contempt, though. And here's what happens. Because you didn't earn anything, you have no right to look on somebody else who doesn't have and assume that it's because exclusively of them, right? Like, we do believe in personal responsibility. And at the same time, we recognize that <coughs> a child dying of AIDS in Africa didn't do anything to deserve that. We recognize that when the blind man was brought to Jesus and the disciples and everyone was asking them, who sinned that he would be in the state, him or his parents, and Jesus says neither of them, that that is the case. That Jesus is right and we are not. And so when you look at someone who is poor or oppressed or marginalized or in systems and structures of danger, and your immediate thought is, well, why don't they make better decisions with their lives? then you are undermining your ability to do biblical justice. And you are forgetting your gospel. Finally, doubt and fear. How do I even do this? If I'm as generous as the scriptures say, how am I going to provide for myself and my, my family? Doubt, fear, concern. And family, that, that's just a stumbling block, but that's not... It's not anything that all of us aren't dealing with. The thing is, we can walk through all of these together. How? The means is the, is the gospel. If you haven't heard it, uh, you hear it. Right? So Exodus 22, 21, which I said, treat the foreigner in your land equally. You know what he says? Because I'm the Lord your God, and I brought you out of Egypt where you were a foreigner. And so what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to remember their time in Egypt, right? And it wasn't gumdrops and lollipops, right? Like, it was slavery, and God delivered them from oppression. And so he's saying, likewise now, then treat foreigners in your midst equitably because I saved you. And what does Jesus say, or what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 8, 9? Daniel talked about it. He said, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, you need to give generously to people. And what he doesn't say is, because I said so. He doesn't try and motivate them with guilt. He motivates them with the gospel, and then we're done. He motivates them with the gospel and he says, 
Because Jesus Christ, who is rich, <coughs> made himself poor for your sake, so that you might be made rich. You now are free to give generously. In fact, when you recognize that, how could you not live generous lives? How could you not live lives of justice? How could you not, as he says in Philippians 2, have this mind in you that was also in Christ the Lord, who, though he was uh, with God and was God, did not consider equality with God something to be held tightly, clung to, hold on to, grasped, but instead emptied himself freely, taking the form of a servant and being found in the form of a servant in the likeness of men, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, care for other people more than you care for yourself. And how could you not, if you know the gospel, that you were desperate and that Christ emptied himself. Christ bore wrath in order to bring restorative, redemptive justice to you. So family, we must, we must be a people of justice. So I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring that with you. This, uh, these in the coming weeks and months.